The Gospel, a basic truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings. Welcome to the Gospel of Basic Truth. We're looking at places in Scripture where we can find the Gospel. In addition to John 3.16, and our desire is to increase and deepen your faith and to give you uh, other tools when you're witnessing to family and friends. Today we're going to look about the challenge of witnessing across culturally and how the Bible gives us uh, some very good guidance on how to witness to people in different cultures. Now, you're going to say, gee, why do I need to learn how to witness to somebody in a different culture? Well, let me start with a couple of rhetorical questions. How many illegal aliens are in this country today? I don't know, but I looked it up six months ago, and uh, some incredible surveys that were done put the number at 16 million. How many legal aliens are in this country? I have no idea. Simply put, uh, though, the number of uh, people from other cultures is growing all the time, uh, and it's certainly even faster uh, in Canada. So in all likelihood, sooner or later, probably even now, you are working with someone from a different culture, and you want to talk to them about Jesus. But do you understand their culture, and, and will it make a difference in sharing the message? I want to start with a disclaimer. People are the same inside everywhere. They have the same feelings, fears, wants, and desires. Now, as I've shared before, for about 11 years, we were involved in two different uh, volunteer ministries working with international students studying here in America. We have met well over, well over 1,000 people, and we stopped counting at 70 different countries. At part of our uh, ministry, we, we did events, but we also did uh, discussion groups. And I've had many, many discussions with uh, people from other cultures. And one of the uh, more popular discussion groups, and we would split into men and women because the title of the, the night discussion was How to Find and Keep a Good Marriage Partner. And one night I remember in particular, uh, we had a very large group. We had a lot of young men from Romania, a lot of young men from South Africa, and a few other countries thrown in. There wasn't one young man around the table that came from a family where mom and dad were still together. Every one of them was in essentially a broken home. Immorality, adultery, uh, polygamy, it was quite frequent in all of these uh, different countries. So we begin the discussion. And a young man from Romania is getting very upset. And at some point, he starts speaking to his friend, the young man next to him, and in Romanian. The, the friend gets all upset. He goes over. He puts his arm around this guy. And, um, it, and it's clear that the first young man is tearing up. And finally, the friend turns and he says to the rest of us, I'm so sorry. He says, referring to the first guy, he just found out this morning that his fiancée from back home, that she's actually a prostitute. 
Oh, and then they go back speaking in Romanian. And at that point, somebody uh, who was from South Africa starts talking. Within a very short period of time, all of these men were opening, young men were opening up and talking deep things. Normally, our, our discussion only lasted an hour. We went from eight to nine. And they were going at it so much so that I bowed out, so let them run the discussion. We got to nine o'clock. They were not going to end. They, they had some serious stuff. Now, what was the point of this is they all had the same fears, the same desires, and it was just common. And for each of them to understand that they were not alone, uh, it, was, it was a pretty moving night. Finally, at 9.30, I said, okay, we got to wrap this up and give the house back to the host because they have to go to work in the morning. So we start with everybody is the same when it comes to hopes and fears and what's inside. But what is different about us is our cultural upbringing. Each of us looks at life through glasses, cultural glasses, and they're all tinted differently. In the Christian ministry world, we typically divide the world into four different cultural types. Now, you can do some internet searches, and you'll find some secular thoughts on this. In the secular world, they typically only use three different cultural types. Uh, But in my experience, having done four, four works. So we're going to start today, and I'm going to describe these four cultural types. And then we're going to go back through and say, is how we are witnessing, how effective is it going to be to somebody in one of the other cultural groups? And we're going to say in Scripture how Jesus actually presented ways and in different circumstances how to witness to people in those different cultures. So we're not going to make this up. We're going to look at what Jesus did in Scripture that helps us to be able to bring the gospel message. Let me start by saying, or continue, I guess, by saying, I'm fortunate I had uh, some training with uh, International Students, Inc. And let me give you an example uh, of where culture really made a difference. Uh, I mean, understanding the other person's culture made a difference whether we could uh, get a relationship with a group. When we took over um, Uh, leadership of our first uh, volunteer ministry to international students. It had been in existence for about 20 years, and the the people that had been there a while, the core team, were sharing that there was one group of students on the medical university campus, big group from India, but we were never over 20 years really able to make any relationships with these people, not any ones that were lasting. The beginning of the school year, we'd invite all the internationals. They would typically come to our parties, the first one. But it was very rare that they would ever return for a second one, and and nobody ever returned for a third time to be with us. At any rate, um, the ISI people were having some training down at Bel Air Press in Southern California, and uh, Andy Pierce was the leader. And I hope to get Andy on uh, to do an interview here by and by. Anyway, Andy had a breakout session on how to uh, have a relationship and, and how to make friends with people from India. It was an hour and a half. I tell you, it blew me away. I get home and sit down with my wife and the core team, and I said, we have done everything wrong. I mean, everything wrong. From the moment we meet them, when they walk through customs at LAX, 
we were doing things that are off-putting in their culture. And so as we were going through with uh, the volunteer team about, okay, we're going to try some different things now with our friends from India. I got to tell you, it worked. Within a few months, we had an incredible ministry, and it went on for, uh, for years with uh, people from India. Um, several of us were, were invited later on to, to weddings in India. Uh, we have two Indian sons. In fact, uh, Joe, if you're listening, uh, Joe and his wife Pauline and their two wonderful children uh, spent a week with us this summer. And so it was simply understanding someone else's culture, and it just opened it up. And, and we then found we had a lot in common. So really want you to listen to this today and, and be mindful of this. Uh, when you will have an international or uh, someone from another culture crossing your path, the, the first cultural type, and this is one that, uh, that I'm a part of and probably most of you who are listening, the law guilt culture. This is a culture that is based on individual responsibility. We have rules and laws for everything. And you as an individual are responsible for obeying those laws and rules. And if you don't, there are penalties, punishment. And even if you don't get caught, if you violate one of these laws or rules, you will feel guilty. So these laws and rules generate guilt, and guilt is kind of what keeps us in line. I'm going to use an example now, and I'll use it in all four groups. Let's take a young mother with a young child. A young mother goes into the child's room and says, all right, Saturday morning, every Saturday morning, you must pick up your toys, put everything away, and hang up your clothes, make your bed. And if you don't do that, I, we will not go to the pool this afternoon. That's mom's rule. All right. First Saturday comes and goes. It's afternoon. Mom walks in, and child has not picked up the room. Mother says, we're not going to the pool today. Oh, come on, Mom. No, you broke the rule. Now you've got to live with the consequences. So from a very early age, we know we are in a, a culture with rules and laws, and we feel guilty when we don't obey them. You go to any big city in a law-guilt culture, and you will see people obeying the traffic rules, okay? Everybody more or less obeys the traffic rules. You go to people in a city in any other country or a different culture, nobody obeys the rules. They're likely not to get caught. But we in our culture, we're a, a culture of rules. The next culture we're going to talk about is the honor-shame culture. And this, folks, is actually the largest cultural group in the world. Shame-honor. Now, I, I'm not going to talk individual countries here, but, you know, it's pretty easy to go through and, and figure out who a lot of this, these people are. The important thing is not being an individual or having individual accountability. The important thing in an honor-shame culture is to be accepted in a group. You, you are part of a group. That is who you are. That is your identity. And you want to do well, and you, you don't want to lose a reputation among your group, or as they would say, losing face. 
You don't want to do anything that would bring shame or dishonor on you because that in turn brings shame and dishonor on your group. The mother in this culture uh, says to her child, you must pick up your clothes Saturday morning and put them all away and clean your room. Because if you don't, when your father comes home this afternoon and sees you didn't pick up your room, you will have shamed me. You will have dishonored me. Your father will say, mother isn't a very good mother because you can't get the child to clean up her room. And later tonight for dinner when your grandparents come over, if your grandfather sees the room is, is not picked up and if things are not clean, he will think that his son, your father, is not a good father and you will bring shame to your father. All right, so you can see how from a very early age you're, you're involved in the shame and honor culture. Now, when you're interacting with someone in your group, it's okay to lie. Why? Because you don't want to say anything that would make the other person feel ashamed or or someone else to be embarrassed. So, for instance, uh, one of the hard things uh, volunteers have to learn working with international students Let's say you have an event, and you make friends with somebody from another culture. Let's say her name is Sarah, and she's in a shame-honor culture. And you have such a good time, and you say, Hey, Sarah, would you like to come over to our house on Friday night, and and we'll do do some uh, American pizza, and we'll sit down and watch a movie? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yes, yes. Love to come. Love to come. Okay. So Friday comes. Crickets. No Sarah. Every single volunteer has had this with shame, honor, culture, students. The truth of it is, Sarah knew the moment you asked her, she couldn't or wouldn't make it. But if she said no to your invitation, you would lose face. So she wants to protect your face, your honor, so she will lie to do that. Rules and laws mean nothing in a shame, honor, culture. Rules and laws are are made by other people. Most of the time, you can break a rule and nothing will happen. And the worst that can happen to you is, okay, maybe you'll get caught and you can make it go away with a bribe. Okay, so laws and rules have very little meaning. In order to work on a secular university campus, uh, what we found is that As a group, the uh, secular universities in North America want you to follow, uh, if you're a nonprofit volunteer group, we'll let you come on, but you have to agree by uh, certain ground rules, certain policies as to how you'll conduct yourself with the students on campus. And so you go through and you have to read all this stuff, and then you have to sign a, a, a contract, if we'll, a certificate saying that you'll promise to abide by these policies. And you really need that certificate if you want to go in and talk to anybody of importance. They're going to want to go, okay, have you been certified? And along with the certification, you do that every year, and you also have to pay a, you have to pay a, a fee in order to do this. Well, as part of this uh, process, once a quarter, you get a magazine, And so every article in the magazine, it's not very big, every article deals with, you know, teaching. Uh, These are written by academics in in the field, uh, helping you to 
to be able to be a, a better interact with internationals. One quarter, the, the magazine was entirely devoted to cheating. And again, without naming countries or nations, the articles basically identified a, a couple of countries where we have a lot of students, shame, honor, culture, and they were saying, you must expect, you educators, that 100% of your students from these countries, shame, honor, culture, are cheating. 100%. Now, uh, there will always be exceptions, sure, but that was what you should expect. And think it, about it now. Don't cheat is simply a rule. You do a benefit analysis, risk-benefit. What is the chance of getting caught cheating? Slim. However, and if you do get caught, what's going to happen to you? Probably nothing. Uh, about the only time you're going to get in trouble uh, cheating is if you perhaps plagiarize for a doctoral thesis. But other than that, there really is no punishment. But on the other side, if you get a bad grade or you fail, you have lost face. You, you are shamed. You are dishonored. So you don't want to do that. You don't want to bring shame to the people who sent you because you did poorly. So cheating is easy. Now, by and large, uh, I would say up until recently, yes, there's always been cheating, but I would say it was the minority in a law guilt culture. Uh, there are notable exceptions. I went to Syracuse University College of Law, and one of our distinguished alumni was a guy named, or is, a guy named Joe Biden. And I will tell you, 40 years ago, it was absolutely well-known among the law school faculty that... Uh, our distinguished alumni plagiarized. So it does happen in every culture, but it's, it's prevalent in an honor-shame culture. All right, let's go on to the third culture, clean-unclean culture. Now, you can identify really quickly because this is, is really, you know, the Old Testament and, and, and the New Testament, the time of Jesus. This is the, you know, the law of Moses, where you got all these laws and rules that deal with cleanliness, okay? So think about food. You go into a restaurant. Okay, we serve kosher. Some foods are clean. Some are not clean. Now, let's kind of talk about the aspects of a clean, unclean culture. Kind of three aspects here. First, there is the physical. You should not be dirty. Next, there is this ceremonial or, or ritual purity, you cannot participate in, say, certain religious activities if you are ceremonially unclean. There are certain ritual purities that you have to do uh, in order to participate in the community life. Uh, you know, you, you can't come in here, we're all of us, if you are ceremonially unclean, because we don't want to touch you and then for us to become unclean. You are not right with God if you are unclean. Now, there's a third sort of an aspect, and um, it's an issue of light and darkness. This is kind of clean, unclean. You want to be a person of light. A person of light is going to do well, and, it, and now it's true for many religions, but I'm just going to take the Hindu religion for a second. You want to have light in you. Now, if you have darkness in you, such as you're a, a, a criminal, you know, you are a thief, you are a murderer, you have darkness in you. 
when you die, if you've got a lot of darkness in you, you could be, because of karma, you could end up being reincarnated into a lower position in, in life. So it's all part of clean, unclean. The mother says to the child, I want you to clean your room, pick up your clothes every Saturday morning. She goes in Saturday afternoon and the child has done nothing. Your clothes are unclean. You put your clothes on to go to school on Monday, you will be unclean. Bad things will happen to you. And sure enough, Monday comes around, turns out, didn't do the homework correctly, didn't do well on a test. Yes, because you are unclean. So you spend your time always trying to make sure, okay, have I, am I clean so that I can go to heaven? Do I have more light than darkness in me? Am I ritually clean so that bad things won't happen to me? You know, every culture has certain aspects of this. I, uh, when I was putting this together, I was thinking of the old Southern Baptist line, we don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. With the idea here being, if you smoke or you drink or you chew, you're unclean. Or if you go with girls who do that, you're unclean. So we kind of should be able to relate to this even in our own culture, even though that is not something that motivates us necessarily in our behavior. The fourth cultural type is what we call power fear. Now, friends, if you have heard some of this before, everybody who puts these together, they, they may give it different names, but this is the essence of the four cultural types. Fourth one now, the power fear, fear power culture. Now, how it was initially explained to us we were in an ACMI conference. Uh, those, it's Association of Christians Ministering to Internationals. They're an umbrella group that provide assets and training to other ministries and other people as to how to minister to internationals. And so, you know, going through these four cultural types is, uh, you know, an important uh, building block working with them. And the fear of power was presented as a, an aboriginal society. You know, today we would say, we wouldn't use that word. We would say in a pre-industrial society. So if you live in a thatched house and you go to work in a dugout canoe, you are in a pre and you don't have a crescent wrench in your toolbox, then you, you probably are in a pre-industrial culture. And it was explained to us that in those cultures, that culture, there's, there's two kind of two worlds there's the physical world and the spiritual world. We as people live in the physical world. The spiritual world, which we don't live in, is inhabited by uh, spirits. Uh, and they use the term mana, all right? The mana are either malevolent, are either wicked, <laughs> or they're arbitrary and capricious. And they can do things in the spirit world which affect you in the physical world and so you're always afraid these these spiritual beings have power either hurt you or it's arbitrary and capricious either way it's a bad day for you if you have to interact with one of the mana and so you spend your whole existence trying to figure out what can i do to ward off the evil now, what we found, and I, I thought at the time, I thought, well, gee, we're mostly going to be working at this medical arts school. 
doctors, <laughs> dentists, all these kind of people. You know, we might get some people from a pre-industrial culture here, but I kind of doubt we get too many of them. Well, it turned out I was right and wrong. We actually got a lot of people from a fear-power culture, but it was not pre-industrial societies. It was post-Christian countries. And in particular, I'm talking about the old Soviet bloc Eastern European countries and countries in South America, which, which we, students we worked with. So for these students, there had been no Christian, you know, either evangelical or Roman Catholic training for three generations, certainly not under the communists, and everybody walked away from the church in South America a long time ago. What filled the gap? Fear power filled the gap. Instead of having mana, people in this culture, in these countries, were afraid of what they couldn't see. Now, there's kind of two extremes to this. The, uh, the light side, I mean, the, the lesser tr- problematic side, is they became extremely superstitious. So here's what happens. Mother says, pick up your clothes, you know, clean your room. Because if you don't, there's evil spirits will attack you. You can ward them off by, by having an orderly life. So now you're afraid. And so you go, okay, okay. I don't want anything bad to happen to me when I walk to school. So, okay, I'll make my bed and clean things up. Well, after a couple of years, you're talking to one of your buddies at school and your buddy pulls out this little necklace. And on the end of the necklace, he's got this amulet. Uh, it's a, uh, could be a, a monkey god. Maybe it's the elephant god. By the way, there is such things out there. Uh, maybe it's crucifix. Um, or you know, maybe it's magic powder. And your buddy tells you, you need one of these. So you don't have to worry so much about making your bed, but this, is, this has got stronger power. And you think, oh, okay, how do I get one of those? And you have, you've got charms and magic uh, uh, words you say, maybe before you eat or before you go to sleep. You have to do certain rituals in order for good things to happen, and you're going to ward off the evil. Um, I was just reading an article here a few days ago about Tom Brady, one of the greatest quarterbacks in, in history, and his wife apparently, according to the article, is a practicing witch and has convinced Tom Brady, uh, who had a Roman Catholic background, that in order for him to win, he, he needed to have these charms, these, these rituals, Okay. And she takes credit for, uh, you know, uh, beating the Seahawks in the, uh, <clears throat> in the Super Bowl several years ago. Uh, you know, again, every culture has some aspects of this. Uh, I lived on the East Coast as a child. I went to a liberal Protestant church. I had friends that went to a Roman Catholic church. None of us were saved, of course, in those days. But I can always remember all of my uh, friends, like in elementary school. Oh, gosh, you know, you got to have all these magic things to protect you. You know, if your parents got a new car, you had to go to the priest to get it blessed, to ward off anything bad to happen to you. Um, 
even now I, I have good friends who are a lot older than I am, professional people who, who are still afraid. And they still have to do certain things so that bad things won't happen to them. They're always afraid. All right, that's one end. The other end, and this is much deeper and heavier, is people get into the occult. They actually want to get involved. They want to learn how to manipulate these, this evil power. Now, friends, let's start by saying, I'm not talking about mana or whatever they may or may not be. I'm talking about real demons, real evil spirits. They're out there. There are people who want to contact them. And they're under the misimpression that they can contact evil. And if they set in a pentagram or, or do whatever, you know, the incantation is, maybe have a sacrifice there, um, that they can bind the evil spirits and get the evil spirit to do their will. Now, the truth of it is the evil spirits are just playing along. And sooner or later, the people who are in this realize it is actually the evil spirits that are controlling them. But uh, they have, uh, they call them grimoires. So you can get this book with all these enchantments and, and, and you know, make all these uh, magic potions. I'm going to talk about a real uh, example here. One of our students from South America. In the city where she grew up, her, her mother was eh, a nominal Catholic, probably went to Mass once every three or four years. Her dad had completely walked it away from even claiming to be a Roman Catholic, and he had done a deep dive into the occult. So it was at the house that she grew up where they had all of the people who were into the occult and wanting to contact spirits went to her house. Her dad was the big guy. He was the big witch or whatever his title was. Here's the deal. She saw stuff. She heard stuff. And her life was one of fear. She hated Friday night because you never knew what was going to show up. And it wasn't good. So her cultural type was power fear. All right, those are the four cultural types. Everybody in the world fits into one of those, and some maybe are a combination of one or two of these. How do we witness to people who, are, let's assuming that we're all a law of guilt, how do, how do we witness to somebody who's in one of these others? Well, I'm giving them the four spiritual laws. In fact, I'll look at the top three that we typically use in our culture. We use the four spiritual laws, uh, which uh, was created uh, by the mission organization formerly known as Campus Crusade. Uh, worked well in the 60s and 70s because we were very much a law-guilt culture. I have been told, I don't know how true this is, but that is a harder sell on universities today as we get further and further away from a law-guilt cultural type. Uh, so of the three that I'll, I'll mention, uh, my wife and I came uh, to Saving Faith through the tool of the, the, uh, the bridge diagram that the navigators do. Uh, and really, what is it? It's, it's the four spiritual laws set out in you know, graphic form. 
And the Roman road, again, it's, we talked about that a time or two ago. And you step through each of these verses. So you're, you're stepping through the verses which, again, lay out, if you will, the four spiritual laws. But just think about it. And I'm going to pick on the four spiritual laws. We are a law guilt society. We understand laws and we feel guilty when we don't obey them. If you go to somebody and say an honor-shame culture and say, hey, can I uh, tell you the four spiritual laws? Well, what, what do you think they're going to, what's going to go through their mind? That, that is not probably a very effective tool because they do not honor or respect laws. So I'm going to look to, to Scripture as I've thought this through and tried to, as we worked with internationals, um, what I'm actually going to suggest, and I'll, I'll use this one example, there are others. I'm going to use the parable of the prodigal son. So you go to somebody from a shame-honor culture, and you don't say, are you saved? <laughs> okay, saved from what? Um, well, from the sins, all the rules you've broken. Eh. I start by saying, hey, you're in the shame-honor culture. And they go, yeah. Well, okay, kind of how does that work now? You play Tommy the Dunce because you know how it works, but you get the conversation going with them. And uh, you get to a point, and I would say to them, if you shamed your father, if you did something that was dishonoring, that shamed your father, would he ever forgive you? And I tell you, every person in that culture that I've asked that question to responds, no. I say, is there anything you could do to fix that, that shame and, this, and that dishonor? And an emphatic no. And that's my bridge point. And I'll say, well, you know, we believe in God, and God created everything. So God is, well, he's a father. He's, he's our heavenly father because he created everything. And they'll go, yeah. And I said, you know, our Lord Jesus talked about that. And here's the story he told and it's a story of a wealthy man, and he has two sons, and, and the older one works hard and, and honors his father, and the younger one doesn't want to be under his father's authority, and he's rebellious. And so he goes to his father, and he says, uh, instead of me waiting until you die to get some uh, inheritance, I would like you to give me what, whatever is due when you die to me, and, and give it to me now, because I don't want to be under you anymore. That is totally dishonoring. That shames the father, and that shames the father within the whole community because, my, you can't even raise your son right. So what is this kid going to do? He gets the property, he sells it, he gets money. Now I'm going to upgrade the story a little bit. And he goes to Vegas. And what does he spend his money on? Well, loose living. He spends his money on prostitutes, intoxicating substances, and gambling. And by and by, he's homeless. <coughs> by and by, he doesn't have shoes anymore. He hasn't got a place to sleep. He doesn't have food to eat. And one day he comes to his senses. So we're going to read about it in verse 18. And again, I am in uh, chapter what, 15, I think it is. Okay. And the young man says, I will go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you by the dishonorable 
dishonoring things that I did. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. At least I'll get eat and get a place to sleep. So he rose up and he went back to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And the father felt compassion, love. And he ran and he embraced his son and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I confess I've sinned against heaven and before you. I've dishonored you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I turned to my friend and said, would you agree that he has dishonored his father? Yes, yes. Mm. But the father says to the servants, bring quickly the best robe that we have in the house. Put it on my son. Put a ring on his finger. That reinstates him as a son. And put shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, was my, this my son was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, the rest of the story, and we're not going to read it, but essentially the older son comes in and goes, Hey, this guy has dishonored you. He has shamed you in the community. What are you doing? Now, what the father says, in a sense, is, Yes, I know he's done that. He's gone his own way, and, and I let him do that. But now he's come back. He has confessed that he's dishonored me. And in my great love for him, I am taking him back as a son. Yes, I will have to deal and live with the dishonor and shame. But my love for my son is so great, I'm willing to do that. And now we go back to the international, and I would say, you know, the Heavenly Father loves you and I. Now, you would agree we've done dishonoring things to the Heavenly Father. Oh, yeah. God loves us so much, the Heavenly Father, even though we've shamed him, that he sent Jesus to take all that shame. Jesus took that shame on the cross. Now, it's a gift, and all you have to do is accept it in faith. All right. I think you get the idea. You can share the gospel message, but consider the culture of the person you're speaking to. If they are not a law-guilt culture, if they're honor-shame, consider using a story like the prodigal son. All right, let's go on to uh, the clean-unclean culture. And I'm going to tell a story uh, that will explain this a little bit. Uh, And we actually are going to be in uh, chapter 1 of Mark, and we'll, we'll be witnessing out of there. So, when we took over this ministry, one of the things we did, besides having events once a month, we had a weekly Bible study on Friday night. And that first year was just an absolute riot. We had all kinds of folks show up. And typically, again, they were older. They were graduate students, doctoral candidates, postdocs, visiting professors. And one of the young men that came actually had his PhD, his doctoral degree in mathematics back in his home country. And he taught mathematics in a university back there. Uh, and he was in a clean, unclean culture. Because of a series of events, and I don't understand them all, he decided that he was going to leave his country and leave this culture. He didn't know what was out there, but there was certain things that were happening. And so he got accepted into a very prestigious uh, school uh, in Southern California and was working on a master's 
uh, Business Administration, MBA, which, by the way, not only did he get that degree, but then he went out and got yet another degree, and he's back in, in science. And so he was, a, he was a little bit older. He's probably 36 at the time and very formal. He came from a culture in which men were not supposed to show emotion. It was okay for women, especially young girls, to be emotional. That was expected. But you go from being a boy to a man, you, you cannot show emotion anymore. And so he, you know, we, we had some good time with him. And the challenge for us was that his English was very, very uh, just, just beginning. So it was very hard to communicate. Uh, he came to the Bible study. And we're realizing, okay, we're giving him an English Bible. This isn't very good. So we decided to go buy a Bible in his language. Oh, that was hard to find. It turns out there were very few Bibles written in his language, and it actually cost us over a couple hundred dollars. But we got this Bible in his language, sat it on the coffee table. He walks in, and you could see just he's looking out of the corner of his eye, and he could see the, this Bible, and it's, it's in his language sitting there. And he has the slightest smile, you know? That was, th- that was the night we saw some emotion out of Mr. T. I'm going to call him Mr. T. And um, anyway, we are in Mark chapter 1. And as you remember from a prior episode, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Mark, Mark throws down the gospel message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he takes the rest of the chapter to present his three witnesses, John the Baptist, God the Father, and then the third witness is the deeds, the signs and wonders that Jesus does to show that he indeed is the Son of God. Uh, And that included power over the demons, and that included power over disease and sickness. And the last miracle that he does here in uh, chapter 1 is healing a leper. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 40. A leper came to him, Jesus, imploring Jesus. Kneeling, he said to Jesus, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand, touched the leper, and said to the leper, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. So, that was, uh, I'll tell you what, folks, that was one of those Holy Spirit nights for Linda and I. Because just as this is about to happen, okay, we, we both, you know, we're, we're getting tapped on the shoulder. The Holy Spirit's telling us both at the same time. We don't know that the Holy Spirit's telling each of us this, which is, look what's going to happen. This is for you. Watch what's going to happen now. So, as I'm reading this, I'll tell you now what happens, and it's just the whole thing sort of unfolds in slow motion so that we can see it. As I'm reading this, as I get to, and the leprosy immediately left him, and the leper was made clean, Mr. T goes, whoa! Friends, I've read that verse many, many times. Jesus, Jesus has power over leprosy. Okay, he's got power over all kinds of things. That is not what Mr. T saw that night. What Mr. T saw and what he heard was, 
this Jesus, whoever he is, was clean. And he touched the most unclean thing out there, a man with leprosy. Now you would expect, and certainly in the the Jewish Hebrew culture, if you touch a leper, you become unclean. And you have to go through all these rules and go to the priest and, and you know, get certified that, that, that you're clean. But that's not what happened. Jesus was willing to touch this man to take his uncleanliness. And he does. And it goes away completely. Not only is this man instantly made clean, but Jesus is still clean. How can this happen? So, you take something like this, and again, we are now seeing that that night we both realized, the Holy Spirit's talking to us, okay, this is how you witness to someone in a clean, unclean culture. Show these stories in Scripture. You know, you can start with something graphic. You can take a glass of water. It's clear. It's beautiful. Put in a couple drops of ink. What is it now? It's dirty. Can that glass ever clean itself? No. I mean, the water can't become clean again. So how is pouring more clean water into dirty water going to make it clean? Ah, God is the one who makes you clean. Jesus was on the cross to pay the penalty for your shame. He was on the cross to make you clean. After six hours on the cross, he died, the last three hours in darkness. The sun came out just before he dies, and he says in English, it is finished, and then he dies. We know that the underlying Greek word is a telestai, and it really translated in English is better translated as it is paid in full. This is the word that was written on a debt by a creditor when the debtor had paid off the debt. It is finished. It is paid in full. Jesus paid in full. He took all of your uncleanness. None left. And it's so powerful, it's now gone. You can be clean in Christ. And you accept this cleanness in Christ by accepting in faith. No matter what you've done, no matter what you'll do in the future, when God sees you, he will see the cleanness of Christ. All right, so that was our third cultural group, suggested ways of presenting the gospel that's culturally relevant to them. Let me go to the power fear, fear power. How do you, how do you witness to this young woman from South America? She doesn't care about rules, that's for sure. She's not into honor-shame stuff. Clean, unclean, that doesn't mean anything to her. I would take her, and there's many places we could go to in Scripture. I would give two examples to her. Let's talk about Mary called the Magdalene. Mary was from a fishing village called Magdala, which is uh, the northern coast of Sea Galilee. We see her first in Luke chapter 8. She and a bunch of other women, and they are named, 
are following Jesus and the disciples. And they are caring for their needs, they're cooking for them, and they are supporting the group out of their own money. So, apparently, Mary was one of them. She had some money, means, and she was supporting Jesus. We aren't told the details, but it says Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, one of the ones that was supporting Jesus and the disciples, is the one in whom Jesus cast out seven demons. Now, scholars debate exactly what this means. So, the obvious option is Jesus cast out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven actual demons out of her. Another group of scholars says, well, in this case, it's used as a metaphor, seven being complete. So Jesus threw demons out because she was completely demonized, totally demonized. Every aspect of her being was demonized. And he cast them all out and they were gone, never to come back. Now, as we go through the story of Mary Magdalene, it is clear that she is utterly, utterly devoted to Jesus. Wherever he is, there she is. Now, some people try to have a purient interest, and that's ridiculous. She is there when he's on the cross. She follows the men who take Jesus' body and puts it into the tomb so that she knows where it is. She goes back Sunday morning in the dark. She is so devoted to this man. And she is the first person to see the resurrected Lord on Easter morning. And she's like, she, she, she wants to worship him. And he's like, don't touch me yet. I have to ascend to the Father. Whatever Jesus did to release her, she is no longer in fear. She obviously was terrorized when she was under control of the demons. And she is so completely free that she is utterly devoted to the one who freed her. We see it in the story of the demoniac uh, in, the, uh, in the Gerasenes. This was a Gentile, all right, and who Jesus cast out over a thousand demons out of him. And he went from being naked and having superhuman strength and ripping chains apart and screaming at the top of his lungs all day to being normal and want to follow Jesus. I would go to my South American friend here, this young woman, and tell her, you don't have to be afraid. You no longer have to be afraid. Jesus has won. And I can show you all these verses where Jesus has done this. And it says, he has triumphed over all of these powers. He is more powerful than them. You have nothing to fear if you are in Christ Jesus. Well, how do I do that? Jesus comes to you, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, comes to you as a gift of God the Father who says, I want you to be safe. I want you to have a relationship with me. I want you to be forgiven of your sins. I want you to have life eternal. You must accept this gift by faith. Come like Mary Magdalene.
Yeah. And you can be safe. Can't you just see this young woman? You, you share this, the story of Mary Magdalene, perhaps the demoniac among the Gerasenes and some others. And you can just imagine, I don't have to be afraid anymore. You know, that is the good news, my friends. We don't have to be dirty, unclean. We don't have to have shame. We don't have to be afraid. Jesus has taken it all. All we have to do is accept it by faith. Friends, with as many, with as many internationals that are in our country and, and family we have in Canada, there may be less number, but the percentage is greater. Um, we need to really think about how we witness. We need to know what the message is, and we need to be culturally relevant. And Scripture tells us and gives us examples on how to do that. Dear friends, I, I hope that you have an appreciation uh, for Scripture. I, I hope you have your Holy Spirit moment where you can see Scripture through the eyes of someone from a different culture and you can go, wow, all over again. All right? I will not tell the story today, but I have seen two people that I, I know with certainty were demon-possessed. And <clears throat> one was from a young woman from South Africa, and I'm going to call her Lady S. God had power when we prayed. I still pray for Lady S. And you say, you, you said she's demon-possessed. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, we saw her manifest some stuff here uh, <clears throat> just a few years ago when working with internationals. God acts when we pray. Any of these people, whoever it is, even somebody who's demon-possessed, friends, start with prayer and then consider the cultural aspects. All right, let's go to God in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I, I thank you that someone shared the gospel with me and with my wife and in a way that we could culturally understand. Father, help us to be sensitive to that as we come across people of other cultural types where we live and work. Lord, bless us and help us to speak your words, not our words. Father, help us to remember always to start with prayer, always to be praying for the people before we speak, because you are the one who calls them. You call their heart. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.